The history of television is a history of failure. For every television series that lasted years and years, there were dozens that lasted only one season or less. But did they deserve to die? Or were they... Cancelled too soon? Cancel Too Soon, the podcast where we review TV shows that lasted only one season or less. My name is William Bibiani. I'm a film critic for The Rap and Bloody Disgusting, and everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I'm a film critic for IGN and other outlets here and there. And uh, you, you don't have to call me anything. You can okay. just ignore me like everyone else. I'll call you late for dinner. Don't call me late for dinner. Late for dinner, Seibold. It has a nice ring to it. <laughs> that was such a weird insult growing up. Just don't like call me late for you dinner. You can call me anything you like, just don't call me late for dinner. So, you're really punctual when it comes to mealtime? Like, that's your virtue? No, that, I that's, think... That, that reveals the strength of your character? Yeah, well, you, you, you can call... Listen, I refuse to be declared unpunctual. Okay. You can call me a jerk. Mm-hmm. You can call me a schmoo. You, you can call me, call me a... You can d- call me a, a, a fraud or a drunken reprobate. Yes. Unpunctual? How dare you? Especially when it comes to dinner time. This has nothing to do with this episode of Cancel Too Soon. Uh, This month on Cancel Too Soon, all of our episodes are chosen by you, our Patreon subscribers, if you're a Patreon subscriber. And if you're not a Patreon subscriber, it's not specifically chosen by you, but it could be. If you joined us at (laughs) patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Do you see how I saved that after I said the wrong thing? Mm -hmm. And then I just... Sickly segued into a more accurate statement. I'm sure no one noticed. But we have polls, and every week people are picking a poll, and And, uh, people love it when we do uh, horror anthologies, and boy howdy, do we have one. Uh, yeah, this, all of the polls were kind of random. It's just sort of a random smattering of things we have that uh, some people have been generous enough to donate, and uh, this was one I had never heard of. And I was very excited, and we had been putting it off for God knows what reason. We almost did it like two Halloweens in a row. Yeah, yeah. Um, because this is a TV show that was produced by the legendary Hammer Studios. Yay! Uh, Hammer, if, if you're a horror fan, you definitely know Hammer. Uh, Hammer is probably best known for their uh, repurposing of a lot of the big universal monsters. Uh, in starting in the late 50s and lasting about 15 years. So, like, the versions of the universal horror monsters that you're fam- probably best familiar with, mm-hmm. like Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff and Lon Janney Jr., uh, those were the black and white 1930s, early 40s. They went up to about the early 50s, but... If it, yeah, Creature from the Black Lagoon is was, 50s. Was the latest yeah. era of uh, universal horror, but... Uh, but they have their own kind of particular aesthetic. They're kind of classy. Mm. They're kind of Hollywood. They're spooky. Mo- they're when, made by different directors, but they're typic- typically lumped together. They're, they're, they have a general overall feel. Mm. And uh, by the mid-50s, they were just kind of institutions. They probably mm. weren't considered scary by a lot of people. And Hammer came in and said, look, all 
most of these things are free reign. Like we can, anyone can do a Frankenstein. A British studio. Yeah. So British studio said we're going to do our own versions of Dracula, Frankenstein, the Wolfman, the Mummy, Mm. and a bunch of other stuff as well. They did a lot of original features too, but they were most famous for reinventing those Mm. and adding a lot of blood Mm. and a lot of sex. Now, not necessarily like hardcore fornication, but there was a lot of sexuality in a more overt way than Americans were used to in their universal horror stories. So you had heaving bosoms and you had mm, like uh, ripping bodices. Yeah, sort of like yeah. You know, bare necks being exposed really lasciviously. <laughs> Christopher Lee took over for uh, Dracula and he had like this very towering sexuality like Bela Lugosi was just sort of like sly and we would like sort of he would charm the pants off of you Christopher Lee would be like pants off now and you'd be like yes sir Woo-hoo. well I, I think Bela Lugosi doesn't get enough credit for being uh for being as sexy as he was um that was a big part of his appeal he had this kind of eastern european aristocratic charm to mm-hmm. him and that was part of his allure he was actually there. He was very seductive, and I think a lot of people have become so familiar with the image of Bela Lugosi that they don't really they kind of take that for granted now. When you rewatch the original Dracula mm. again, uh, if you can try to watch it, like just ignore all the the parodies, the ripoffs, the Hotel Transylvania's, mm. even if they're good, just try to ignore them and yeah. just watch what Bela Lugosi is doing as just an Eastern European moving to Europe, yeah, moving yeah. to uh, Britain. Sorry. And just how different he is mm. from every other boring British dude. <laughs> and just all of a sudden, here's the suave, sophisticated. He's wearing a cape. He's wearing, he won a yeah. medal for something. <laughs> I don't know what, but oh. by God, he won that medal. He's pretty cool. Like, you can see, like, oh, God. Um, it's like um, one of the stories that I heard was that, uh, you know, the the idea we have of Vikings as these uncouth, burly men who never yeah. bathe was largely started by, like, British people uh-huh. who, like, had Vikings were coming to their country and they were so well, like, so tidy and they bathed more than once a month that people started to look bad in comparison like why can't you bathe once a week like this viking why can't you comb your hair okay here's what we're gonna do we're gonna say they don't bathe and they don't comb their hair and they wear horns on their head for some reason a pen you know demonic well my point is this a lot of our ideas of that come from british people being nervous about Mm. cooler people coming in and making (laughs) them look bad in comparison bella ghost is going for a similar thing Mm. but in any case, Hammer was an incredibly successful horror studio. It had a lot of hits, a lot of classics. Um, I'm a particular fan of the Karnstein trilogy, which are mm-hmm. incredibly sexual. Um, I've watched all of the films in the Dracula series, and there's more than you think. There's, yeah. like, there's like 11 of those things. Uh, starting with Horror of Dracula and lasting all the way up to Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires, which is a kung fu film without Christopher Lee. Um, I thought he was in it for like a minute. Am I wrong? I, maybe in stock footage. Okay. Uh, there's a really great one called Taste the Blood of Dracula. That's a fun one. It's about a cult of people who are tasting the blood of Dracula and turning into like Dracula cultists. Which actually they is... found the, his blood in like powdered form and they're snorting it. Yeah. yeah. People had weird... They're, they're, they're melting it and shooting it up. But yeah. 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 No, people had weird sort of mm. death ideas back in like the 19th century and they would actually... Uh, you know, corpse parties. There would be like corpse parties. Apparently, we we're like, we got this mummy. Everyone, gather around the mummy. Have a sandwich. Neat. 
Yeah, you don't get to see that too often. Yeah, yeah. like there, there's a fascination. I think they're playing off of it. Hammer was incredibly successful for about two decades, and then in the late 1970s, they kind of started to run their course. Their movies weren't making money anymore, and there was a shift, and there was a big shift towards doing more television. And as we see in this week's show, uh, they moved into anthology horror, which a lot of people forget that Hammer didn't really do that much. Mm. There was a com- there was a competing British horror brand called Amicus. And Amicus is best known for doing anthology horror movies. And they would get a lot of the same cast members they, they, as, as Hammer Horror. They're the ones who did Tales from the Crypt yeah. and, and Vault of Horror. Those are the best best known ones. Anyway, Perhaps. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, they would what they would do is they would do these movies. There might be a framing device. There might not. And it would just be a series of short horror tales featuring very famous or soon-to-be-famous British actors, many of whom were also in Hammer horror movies, so a lot of people confuse the two. So when Hammer decided to do a television series, they decided to do a serialized, episodic format, each week a different story, each week with Mm. different noteworthy or famous British Mm. actors. But completely different stories. No host. No. No framing device. Yeah, just, here's a horror story. And... As a result, it's a Hammer horror TV show that plays a lot like an Amicus horror TV show. (laughs) It is called Hammer House of Horror. Hammer's House of Horror, but no. Hammer House, like a house full of hammers of horror. Every episode begins with a bit of a cold open, something scary from the show mm. we're about to see, and then the credits is just a bunch of shots of a house, and then the story begins. That's, the house has nothing house to do with horror. Yeah, there's, yeah, it has nothing to do with anything. You're not in the house. You're not reading a book from the library in the house. I, uh, no one in the house is narrating. There's just a house, and we're very proud of it. As much as I love the framing devices, I love the Crypt Keeper. Uh, yeah. I, I loved uh, what was the name of the, the hostess from. Perversions of Science. Chrome. Chrome. Uh, Even Chrome, I think, is an interesting creation. Sure. Uh, This idea that I found this ancient moldy tome in a tomb, and these are the stories they're in. That's always always, fun. It adds a a little bit of color, adds a little bit of context to what you're seeing, but Mm. at the end of the day, it's kind of useless. It's just window dressing. I think I, I like having an excuse to be here. Okay, I do. I think if if the if you're watching more than one story, I like having a reason to watch more than one. And well, the Hammer House of Horror, though, in taking that out, gave their show a little bit more of a classy appeal. It had sort of a masterpiece theater kind of vibe to it. Masterpiece theater had a host. Uh, it did, but the the stories are often <laughs> taken out of that context. True, and I'm, presented I'm, on PBS just as sort of standalone mini movies. Call me nostalgic. Uh, I miss it. Okay, I miss it. Um, I don't. I don't feel like it was necessarily missing from Hammer House. Not, of not specifically, but it's weird that we have this like title sequence that is very specifically. Here's this one house. Look at how spooky this house is. You can see someone in the window looking out at you. Well, but Does that have anything to do with anything? Literally nothing. Why do we keep showing it? Credits. I don't know. Well, you can put the credits over the episode. <laughs> you can put the credits over anything. Like when well, you when, when you distract from the episode when you. 
look at the house from Tales from the Crypt. It mm. leads you downstairs to the Crypt Keeper. There's a reason yeah. for that. This could have led you like into the house, mm. into the library, into a fireplace, into bed where you're gonna have a nightmare or something. But like, no, just like look at this house. Mm. Okay, are you trying to sell the house? No. Okay. Yeah, like- I- now that I think of it, I'm glad that they never really expanded the context for that house in within Tales from the Crypt. Mm, like we yeah. never got to know the family or who built it or where the crypt came from. Or yeah. they did. There was one episode called Lower Birth where we got to find out like who the crypt keeper's parents were. Right, and it was like a, a circus mutant and a mummy. <laughs> so it was just so <laughs> absurd that I don't really. Yeah, it's not like expanding on a myth. It's just you know. Trying to come up with a really sick story to compl- I like to cre- explain the creation of this weird puppet. I like to equate that to um, in uh, Batman the Killing Joke when you find out the secret origin of the Joker. Oh yeah, and how that's just one version of that. Like he probably mm. tells different versions of that story all the time. Mm. Like that's just one origin of the Crypt Keeper. It's like in, in the Dark Knight, he gives he tells several origin stories. Yeah, how ones. he got his scars yeah. and the story's different every single time. Yeah. Like he's an unreliable narrator, and I buy that the Crypt Keeper is an unreliable narrator. So, where did I come from? Maybe my mother was a mummy, and my dad was a two-faced circus freak. <laughs> Who was a daddy? A mummy, daddy. I got nothing. Okay, so, uh, <laughs> Hammer House of Horror uh, ran in 1980. Uh, from uh, September on, 13th yeah. through December 6th. It aired on ITV. Um, and it was created by Roy Skaggs, who was in charge of, or, or at least co-in charge of Hammer at the time. Uh, and the episodes were directed by a bunch of different people, and they starred a bunch of different people, and they're kind of all unrelated. Um, they're they're, you, they're all all completely unrelated. Well, they have, they're, um, there are parallels, I think you'll find. Like, there are certain specific anxieties that come up in a lot of these. For example, I noticed this, and you hadn't gotten to many of the episodes in which it's a thing yet, uh-huh. when I told you, but... Um, I'd say about half of these episodes, at some point, someone loses control of their car on a quiet country road. Uh, yeah, that evidently, if this show is any indicator, that is one of the like British national anxieties, yeah. like like careening off of a country road. Uh, not a, sure. not a, not a busy road. No. It's just like oh, the brakes went out and then he no, crashed, I mean, and then that's either the start of the story, or the middle, or the end. But it's in a lot of these. No. If you have that kind of story in America, think of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah. Where uh, you're out of sort of the, the central economic hubs of the country and you're mm-hmm. in the middle America. Things that have been racked by drought and poverty. Yeah. And like decades later still haven't recovered. There's this also, you know, America is a stolen nation. We just sort of swept through and took this nation from the people who were living here. Yep. That's that's our that's our origin. There's a lot of, like, guilt, death, and horror already sort of lurking out in the mm-hmm. American countryside. Like, so if, you're, if you're an urbanite makes, yeah. in the American countryside, you're already racked with guilt and you're just waiting for someone to punish exactly. you with, so by killing of, you with a chainsaw it kind of or ma- something. Yeah, it yeah. kind of makes sense that if you drive off the road, you run into the, the cannibal family from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah. I didn't realize that same sort of anxiety existed in kind of the lush grasslands of Middle Britain. Yeah, people will end up at anything. They'll end up at a posh house. Mm-hmm. Horrifying. They'll end up at a weird cabin. Horrifying. They'll just mm-hmm. get back in their car. Horrifying. And, like, and, just quiet country roads. They're just like, this the creepiest thing they could think of. And and the Britons are the ones known for being the colonialists. And But all of these take place in England. Uh, I think they do, yeah. So, 
many of them in like big cities and a flat and you know standard flats mm-hmm. and little townships. A couple of very couple of very posh buildings, but yeah, like, uh, um, like uh, country houses. But so the, this notion of being afraid of the countryside stems from some sort of British national character that I'm simply not familiar with. I think that there's when we look at every episode of this, I think a lot of these episodes. Mm they're connected by anything is the idea that underneath that austerity underneath that uh chill or vaunted Mm. or uh even um aesthetically beautiful Mm. uh, british facade or veneer there is something horrifying and that horror can be uh, the amorality of people who are so rich wealthy and isolated that it doesn't matter what they do they can do anything they want and get away with it a lot of it is based off of a lot of colonialism there's a lot of uh, oh we picked up this demonic statue from so on and so forth and mm. now we and now it's now it's in a yard sale yeah yeah and now then it's going to kill us all like there's a lot of I think the idea of isolation, the idea of isolation from the world, which is scary, but also isolation makes us scary because then we get weird and insular and mm. we start focusing on our creepy, weeby well, well, obsessions. We, we we start to recall sort of the the darker things in the history that we may have forgotten about. Yeah, and the case in point, uh, let's talk about the first episode. First it's episode called is, Witching Time. Uh, yeah, it's about... Uh, with, not the Salem witch trials, but no. you know witch burnings. Yeah, there were lots um, of witch burnings in in uh, so England as well. Yeah. There, there's a, a posh home. A fellow wanders out into his barn, and who should be there? Newly appeared, but a naked Patricia Quinn from Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yeah, she was magenta in Rocky right. Horror, and he's played by John Finch. An actor who I always think of as not John Hurt, but uh, he's probably best <laughs> known for being in Alfred Hitchcock's only R-rated movie, Frenzy, which is really mm. scary. Frenzy's great. It's 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 like genuinely shocking yeah. too. Frenzy. And it's it, like uh, it's like Hitchcock doing a giallo. Like it's really stylish and gross and violent. It's, it's really yeah. It's super violent. It's the only Hitchcock film that has like outright nudity in it. It, yep. it feels like like he was experimenting with something. Well, the R rating was new, and he could finally like yeah. do stuff like he probably wanted to do in Psycho, and now he has a freedom to it. But it mm-hmm. doesn't. He doesn't like rest on. Well, now I can be violent. Like he has ideas now that I can. Like, linger on the violence. What can I do with that? And as a result, a lot of frenzy takes place from the killer's perspective. And a lot of the suspense is stuff where, like, you're in, like, the backseat of a truck with a killer. And if he's discovered, he'll, like, go to jail or be executed. Mm. And Hitchcock frames it in such a way you're just like, oh, no. What? Oh, yeah, he should get caught, shouldn't he? I don't want that guy to go to prison. (laughs) Yes, I do. He strangled people on camera. And meanwhile, the guy who is, like, the, the, like, wrongly accused fugitive is John Finch, who is a piece of shit in that movie. (laughs) He's a bad guy. Like, he's not a killer. He doesn't deserve that. But he's not a nice person. He doesn't have our sympathy. It's a weird film, mm. uh, but John, yeah, he plays he's, a. He was also uh, Macbeth. In, oh yeah, in, in Polanski's film version. I forgot about that. Yeah. You're right. Um, another morally compromised mm. character. Um, so yeah, here he's a he's a movie composer. Uh, he's dating, I think, one of the actors from the movie. Yeah, and she is off having an affair with somebody while he's working at home. He finds a witch in his barn. And she, at first, it's kind of dull because they go through like the usual hocus pocus shit, like ah, electric lights, how scary! Well, but she's Patricia Quinn, and she she's a good actress, and yeah. she's able to sort of make that fish out of water stuff seem creepy rather than silly. True, it, but at it, the same time, it was those, a little tedious. Those me. things aren't played for for laughs, and no. also she clearly has an agenda here. She used her witch magic to teleport from the past and ended up in the future, mm-hmm. and. 
she kind like she doesn't understand a lot about the future, but she clearly has an agenda. And well, she understands that to... men are still men, and she can manipulate this guy yeah, sexually really. into mm. becoming hers. So yeah, and like, so come into my bedroom, and she just whips off a robe and says, "Hey, you're a sucker." He's like, "Well, yeah, I am." <laughs> and what's interesting is that we're introduced to his uh, girlfriend. We're introduced to her. She's having an affair. We know she's mm. sleeping around. And yet she becomes the hero of this very quickly because he isn't just sleeping around. He is having this weird, torrid, emotional affair. He's losing his personality. And even though she clearly isn't that into their relationship, she does have to save him. And it leads <laughs> to this thing where it's going to be a big burning pyre. Yeah. Will he burn his wife alive or girlfriend? Will, or will he burn she the burn witch? the witch? Yeah. And it's okay. It's definitely not the best episode in the series, but Patricia Quinn's really fun in it. It's a good one to start with, though, because it's starting us with a familiar monster. Mm. If you start with, like, and here's a monster living in a VCR, you know, you might alienate your audience pretty fast. Yeah, it's kind a, of a witch is, is, you know, your feet are on the ground with right. a witch. Uh, I really liked the second episode, uh, the 13th Reunion. Mm. Uh, this one is about a, a reporter, and she's oh, investigating right. a. You didn't like this one? No, I, I remember this okay. one. the The story's pretty convoluted because all of a sudden there's like a cult out of nowhere. It, it it starts in one way, and then it goes through like three different. Maybe it's about this before it finally lands on what it's really about. Mm. But once it does, I was really scared. She's a reporter, and she's investigating mysterious disappearances at a health spa. And the idea of this health spa is that they take people who feel that they are fat, overweight, whatever word you would prefer. And humiliates and, them. Yeah, yeah, it's this actually really gross. And there's like these scenes where they like yell at people. And I'm watching this, and I'm like, thanks, Hammer. But we're going somewhere with well, this. I, and it and turns I think, out... I think that might be actually based on... On like a lot of rhetoric that was in sort of like the workout world that was just emerging in mm. the early eighties. I mean, think about like, like jazzercise and all well, that health craze that started also, up in the eighties. There's also a tradition um, of creepy health spas. I mean, Kellogg, the guy who invented yeah, cornflakes, yeah, yeah. he had this real look it up. He had this really <laughs> terrifying sounding health spa where he did horrible things to your body and mm. like helped stigmatize masturbation for future generations and and but just they made really, a movie about it called The Road to Wellville, which is not wholly accurate, but you know does reveal a lot of about what was it, going on at the Kellogg health camp. It's interesting. Like, I don't think it quite works. But um, was it, did Anthony Hopkins play Kellogg? Anthony Hopkins oh, was right. Kellogg That's in right. that one. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so she investigates this health spot. People do disappear. There's actually a really sweet subplot where she meets a guy and they're kind of awkward together, but they're going to date each other. And then he dies. And then he, mm. and then his body disappears, and, and she has oh, to investigate. He, and he's played by a notable actor. Is was, he? Um, I didn't recognize him. Oh god! All, all of the actors. If you watch any kind of British television, yeah, at all, like if you were a fan of any British TV from 1975 to 1995, you're going to recognize just about every single oh, yeah. one of these actors. Uh, the BBC was so good about just sort of tapping. They had well, this was ITV or ITV. Well. British television British, was quite good. British actors got around, is my point. If you got one job, you got eight jobs. Yeah. Um, it, it's almost as if they only had, like, 500 actors, and you got to go to just those. Yeah. Um, so she investigates his disappearance. Now it's personal. And she eventually finds herself, long, long story short, she finds herself, she breaks into a house that she thinks is someone to do with all these disappearances and murders. Hmm. And she finds herself at a very fancy dinner party. With a whole bunch of people who probably shouldn't even be in the same room together. And then it turns out they were all part of a plane crash that crash landed. Yeah, th th this was a weird wrinkle. This, this is a weird wrinkle. It comes thing, in late, but, yeah. but it's weird. And it's, it, it evolves really slowly. So you're a little ahead of her at every given moment and it starts creeping you out. <laughs> and they start saying like, yes, no, we were all, we met at a, we, we were survivors of a plane crash. And we were there for many, many weeks. And every once in a while we get back together and just have a dinner party. 
And you're starting to put those pieces together in your head. Okay, have you seen the movie Alive? Yeah, so you're starting to put the pieces together in your head, and you realize that they're all coming together to have a meal they can't have anywhere else, and they're really rich, and they can get away with anything they want. And then there's this giant... And they have free access to as many overweight people as they want. And they bring in this (laughs) giant silver tray with, like, a lid on it. And and they start licking their lips in anticipation of this food. And our heroine's there. She's been invited to the meal. And she keeps looking at the tray, and we cut back to her, look at the tray. And it's so suspenseful, because you know they're going to whip that thing off. It's going to be like a human head underneath. And and I love how they play it, because Mm -hmm. they never actually show you. What she she, does is she panics. She start the the cloche starts to go up, uh-huh. and she freaks out before she sees anything. She's like, "Don't you dare! I know what's in there!" And she runs, mm. so we never see it, and that's so scary because like <laughs> it's a great way to like build to the tension, have well, the tension have a big crescendo without showing you exactly what you expected. Well, also, if they were to like whip off the cloche and it was like a human face, like wrapped yeah. around a steak or something, like a, a torso yeah. with broccoli on it, or yeah, something like. like or it, yeah, like if if you're gonna be serving human meat, it wouldn't look like a human meat. It wouldn't no, look be like sliced. A human. It yeah. would be like any other meat. Yeah, yeah. but and, you wouldn't you want know, to sell it that way. If it's tales from the crypt, they'd sell it that way because they're going for as like lurid and as tacky as possible. That right. was that was their mission statement: make it tackier. No, no, tackier, tackier than that. <laughs> it has to be a, like a, a ring of human hands. Yeah, I, I think they wanted to assure that it wasn't going to look tacky. Yeah. They didn't want it to look like a cheesy horror story. I just, they just wanted it to be a cheesy horror story. I just I can't think so, of another like horror story that played up like we knew it was coming. We built to it slowly. The audience is on board. Mm-hmm. The audience is scared. We're really intense. If we were in this situation, it'd be horrifying. And then find a way to not show it that doesn't feel like a cop out. And they did it. And yeah, that's a really yeah. really well handled bit of storytelling. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next episode is called Rude Awakening. This one scared me, too. <laughs> but you know what? This actually... The anthology series, they run hot and cold. Sure. Typically, There's always a good one, speaking. a bad one. Yeah. It's a few good ones, a few bad ones. And people latch onto the good ones. And if there's one good one in four, like one really nice one, that, Chef's that, Kiss, that's a good track record. That, that's a really good... Mm. It's like you've, when you don't know anything about baseball and you find out that like mm. hitting 50% of the balls that are thrown at you is considered godlike. Uh-huh. And you're starting to think, like, really? Is, is it really that good? Like, yeah, it's actually really hard to do this mm. right. So, like, think, f- so, a horror anthology that, like, gets one out of four is a great horror anthology. I would say, this only like, ran 13 episodes, and I would say there's only, like, maybe three or four duds. Uh, there's a couple th- of mediocres, ones, but there's only a couple of duds, you're right. Uh, and I think, and this goes back to the hostlessness. It feels like these are, they're genuinely trying to tell an original story each time, each with its own pace, mm-hmm. each with its own types of characters, and each with its own tone. Well, and I think what really and helps if, this I think as well. they, if they had that binding material, they'd be beholden to a tone. And I think there's a little less freedom to do what they did. I, you, perhaps you're right. I do think another thing that really helps them is that these episodes average about 50 minutes. Yeah. If this was a half hour, you ha- wouldn't have nearly as much time. You'd probably have to do the old-fashioned short film setup, payoff, punchline yeah. kind of thing, which is, works in Tales from the Crypt really, really well. But at 50 minutes... You can play. You can add yeah. subplots. You can add subtext. You can mm-hmm. build pacing. You can do twists and have the story go in a completely different direction. And it's not quite feature length, so that you can't really delve into things too deeply. And I think there's some episodes that really feel that way. But 
overall, most of the episodes take advantage of the extra time. Yeah. Uh, this third episode is the dream episode, which are ordinarily really insufferable. Yeah. Because they always come back to, oh, this is this was all a dream all along. This one actually does get back to reality in a really interesting way. Uh, Denholm Elliott plays an office wonk. Denholm Elliott, you know from the Indiana Jones movies. Yep. He played Marcus. The uh, the museum curator who worked with Indiana Jones, who got all of his stuff. In the first movie, he was just sort of a, a square British man. In the third movie, he was kind a of bumbling, a, a bumbling buffoon. Yeah. Played them played both versions of yeah, that great character actor. pretty well. Great actor. Uh, and he is working with a younger woman played by an actress named Lucy Gutteridge, who I know from Top Secret. Yeah, she's actually <laughs> long since retired, but yeah, she's probably best known as the lead in Top Secret yeah. opposite Val Kilmer. Um, and so he plays like a real estate surveyor. Mm. And, and he, he's, he's married yeah. to a wife that he openly hates. Yeah, uh, asks her for a divorce over and over again. She says, no. And uh, so what happens is he goes to work. He's got this sexy secretary with whom he's got a flirtatious relationship. Uh, and then he is asked to survey an old house out in the middle of nowhere. And he goes to the old house and creepy things happen. And oh no, he dies. And he wakes up next to his wife. It's miserable. He goes to work. And now his secretary's there, but she's wearing a different fetishized outfit. Yeah, she's every like every time. She's kind of like a schoolgirl in one. She's yeah. like this new wave punker girl in one. Yeah. She's like this like weird French model in one version. Yeah. Yeah. And every single time he does something related to his work and something horrible happens and then he wakes up again and you start realizing that every single one of these dreams is telling him he shouldn't have killed his wife. Hmm. There's two things with this. One, there's this one dream he has and you don't know it's a dream at first because it's uh. actually very just shot very normal where he goes instead of to that old house he goes to a building in the in the city and mm -hmm. And he goes all the way up to the top of this building. It looks like it's going to be condemned. And that's when he realizes he's in the wrong building. And this one is about to be destroyed by a wrecking ball. Yeah. And then he and the, what the Lucy Gutteridge have to like try to run down the stairs as fast as they can while a wrecking ball is knocking off pieces of the building above them, which is a nightmare I didn't know I should have. <laughs> it is such a the simple... coming yeah. down around you. Yeah, as you're running down it, it's... So, I've, I've had a lot of the old-fashioned... You know, nightmares. You know, trapped in a spot. Can't remember your lines on stage. Uh, falling yeah. from somewhere. I have. A, I've had a lot of dreams about tidal waves. Like mm. just you know, kind of old fashioned, overwhelming things uh -huh. are horrible dreams. I've never had that one. And the way that they just put it together is so elegant mm -hmm. and so scary and so hopeless. And it goes on long enough that it's like, is there even a bottom floor to this building? <laughs> it's really scary. Okay. But it comes around crashing down like kind of fun. At the end, because eventually he realizes he's stuck in a dream. He, he realizes he keeps on dreaming, uh, yeah, that, that Lucy Gutteridge keeps changing. I th he never says, you keep changing, but I think he becomes kind of aware of what's going on. Yeah. And uh, he realizes, oh, well, if I'm in a dream, let's just sort of solve this the way one would in a dream. Like, I'm in a horror story. I'll just kill my wife and run off with my secretary. And so he does, and it's only then that we we come to realize that that wasn't the dream part. Yeah, he actually did wake up this time. He actually did wake up this time. He actually did kill his wife, and Lucy Guthridge was just his dream woman. They ne never actually had any kind of relationship. And there's this bit when like the police are carrying away. He was like, that's not fair! Uh, and a part of me is like, I mean, it kind of is, but also, <laughs> you got really set up by your own subconscious there. That's, that's a difficult one. Okay. Uh, the next one's called Growing Pains. 
Um, this one, you're gonna have to remind me how this one ended. So uh, it's oh, about well, this. This one, uh, yeah. These two, uh, this rich couple out in the countryside, mm-hmm. have adopted a new son, and the son's sort of at first this kind of Damien type child. Yeah, kind He's of a creepy. little, a little too polite. Knows a lot. O- openly yeah. mis like misinterprets what is said to him in regards mm-hmm. to rules. He has a little bunny that he refuses to let go of. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, he's, you think he's sort of like, okay, they just adopted demon child and he's going to kill them all. But it turns out they're really bad parents. The dad is just sort of off on business all the time and the mom doesn't really want to look after him. Yeah. She's, she's a little busy. So she just says, go walk in the countryside. And the reason why they're adopting a child in the first place is because their first child, as we discover, when the kid finds the grave. He finds the, the kid finds the grave. Well, I mean, we saw it in a prologue. Yeah. But the thing is, they say, go walk in the countryside, take the dog for a walk and we actually spend a lot of time with the kid by himself. So we realize that he's not like casting spells or doing anything supernatural. He's mm. the one who discovers the grave. Just kind of a weird kid. And yeah. Re- yeah, he's just sort of a weird kid. And he re- re- comes to realize that he's the replacement child for their dead son. Uh-huh. So he, in a we- even though he's the creepiest one in the house, he's the wronged party here. Yeah. But what here's what I couldn't quite tell at the mm. end, though, was, was it... Because he starts implying that this, the dead son has been talking to him in some way. Like, mm-hmm. refresh my memory. Was well, he, the dead child, bes- like, possessing him or something? Or was well, that he, just the twist? He finds a ki- the kid's diary and begins recite. And, like, I think he's, like, a little bit socially awkward. And he's not maybe even on the spectrum. And he's not really putting together the rela- the corollary between the diary and the parents. But mm-hmm. he starts reciting it to sort of see what their response would be. Ah, that's what's happening. And... Okay. The parents actually didn't know about this secret diary that their dead son was keeping, and it turns out that they were neglecting him this whole time. Uh, that he wrote this little poem about "I'm just off in this off to the side. My parents don't pay any attention to me." So it's actually more about this kid as almost a supernatural spirit of rebuke for the neglectful parents. Mm. So when it comes time for the parents to sort of face up what they were had been doing. The son, as it turned, the dead son, as it turns out, is appearing as a ghost in the house and kind of okay. So it was supernatural at the end. Yeah. The, oh, okay. There I is, there is something was, supernatural okay. right. and, and was using not the boy as sort of like this possession conduit, but as sort of the the catalyst. I to thought I thought some of their ex- his own vengeance. I thought some of their explanations for things in that one were a little vague, but okay. other than that, had struck a good tone, and I liked yeah. it. Uh, the next one, I, well, and I love yeah. the young actor who played the boy because he oh, really yeah. kind of really had us like sort of against him right at first because he's sort of this creepy monster child but he gets our sympathy real fast uh the next one i is a great idea uh-huh. no i'm not i think this is one where the pacing gets away from it uh this is called the house that bled to death first off <laughs> great title great title i love that title. the house that dripped blood on kevin and what we t- it's a true thing. Uh, mm. The uh, the prologue is there's an elderly couple and there's a murder, etc. Mm. And then after the credits, we see this young couple and their daughter. They move into the house where all those horrible things happened. Mm. And they start slowly over the very slowly over the course of the episode. Uh-huh. Figuring out that something supernatural is going on. The murder mm. weapons from those horrible murders keep popping up everywhere. And it all culminates finally mm. after a really long time. Uh, with the little girl's birthday party. Mm-hmm. And while the dad is like trying to fix the pipes in the basement, mm-hmm. the pipes explode and blood shoots out over an entire child's birthday party. Well, they're, they're, This has been happening all throughout. Like, 
the little girl is sort of like creeping around the house looking at sort of little things the way the the house is physically rotting. You yeah. Know, big rot metaphor. And yeah, there's a big birthday party. There's something to do with a haunted knife that keeps finding its way off of the wall. Get rid of those knives. Don't yeah. put it back on the wall when you find it you know, in, in your daughter's bed or wherever it had turned up. Well, the knife came mm. back and, yeah, the, the, the knife day. She, she the opens up a present. Back. It turns out one of the kids gave the, ki- gave the girl a knife for her party. And then right when everybody's gathered around to have cake, a pipe on the ceiling starts groaning and moving and it detaches and sort of angles itself over the party. We hear some horrible slurping noises. And then, yeah, this fountain of blood just pours out on the cake and on everybody. You know, when I was a kid, I broke my nose at one of my own birthday parties. You broke, you actually broke it? Actually broke, fell on a stair and like, you know, that like, here's the part, flat part of the stair, here's the vertical part of the stair, it meets in a corner. Mm. That corner, crunch right in the middle of my nose. Wow. This is a worse birthday party. <laughs> this birthday party yeah, right here is even worse than everybody's that. Everybody's just coated with blood and they start screaming and it's just horrible. And that's, and apparently that's considered, like I was reading an article of like the scariest moments in British TV history and this, uh, this particular scene mm-hmm. made the cut, I guess it's traumatized a lot of kids. Yeah. Um, but then the actual ending of it is we find out all that was fake. Every single, like those, those parents, they pulled an Amityville. Where yeah. they moved into a house where something terrible happened. And I'm, I know whether or not the actual story of the Amityville horror was the horror part, the supernatural part. Mm. There's a lot of speculation about whether that family actually did experience all that or whether they played it up for the press or they made it up entirely. I don't it's, know the answers to all of those it, things. Well, the, but what I do know there, is there, that there this were, is playing off the idea. Yeah. There were, uh, as for, as to the Amityville house, there were actual murders in that house. Yes, that's true. Those those did take place. Uh, and there the, was the ghost stuff afterwards. The ghost stuff in the family that moved in after the murders had taken place, the, they left very hastily after living there for a short while, saying that there were these weird sort of creepy things, you know, hauntings, and they were hearing demonic voices. Sold a book, made a hit movie. But yeah, they, they sold a book, they made a hit movie. It. it was revealed many years later that it was very openly a hoax. They made it up, but they made it up in conjunction with the actual murderer. Uh, like the what? Or the, or I didn't the, know that one. The, like, I, I think with the lawyer of the murderer, but wow. there I mean, was like some intermediary as to like what was going on, and they got details of the actual killings. That's so anyway, the house that um, bled to death is the the reveal is they did all of that, but the big reveal is that they didn't tell their daughter, mm. and one of the things that they did in order to sell it was they killed the daughter's cat, and when she finds out <laughs> that it was all faked a couple mm. of years later, she kills them with the knife. Mm. But the, with the haunted knife. Yeah, yeah. Get it? Mm. Don't see, be, on paper, it's not be, bad, well, but it's actually not very told very well. I mean, you you see where all... Uh, Tales from the Crypt, uh, Hammer House of Horror, a lot of these horror anthology shows. I mean, there's like a little setup and a little payoff, but they're basically mini morality plays. Sure. And uh, they all revolve around the Seven Deadly Sins. Especially Tales from the Crypt. Mm. Mostly Lust and Greed in Tales from the Crypt, but yeah. others as well. Pride. This is, this is definitely um, a greed one. This is a greed one. So... Yeah. I'm watching these stories when it comes down to oh, and it turns out it was just greed. Yeah, it feels right. It feels like every, it feels like everything clicks. Ah, yes, there's the deadly sin where we're go. exploring this week. Uh, the next one's called Charlie Boy, and this is about uh, a man and a woman who buy uh, a Zuni. Fe- well, it's not a Zuni fetish. But it's a fetish. It's an African fetish. Doll. If you'll recall, we did an episode of the Cancel Tuesday Monthly Movie where we talked about uh, mm. oh, what's it? Tales of Terror. What's it called? 
Tales for Terror. Yeah. It's Tales for Terror. Okay. Yeah. Uh, which has one of the most famous uh, horror anthology segments ever, which is... Um, Karen Black versus a living doll monster. Yeah, that's trying to kill her, and the doll is this African fetish doll that's trying to kill her. And um, There's a lot to unpack... In there, of, uh, in terms of cultural <laughs> bullshit, a, a but like and racism. Yeah. But regardless, just in a vacuum, it's a very scary bit. Uh, this is very similar in how it starts, and then it's a couple they buy a, mm. a, a fetish doll that looks very similar to the one from the Karen Black movie. But it's, this one doesn't come alive. This is actually larger, a doll. Yeah, it's larger and it's a, st- a statue, and it has a bunch of knives in it. Yeah, and if you stab it with one of the knives, well, like I think looking at like a picture of the person you want to die, mm. they will die. And then what it becomes very quickly is basically an early. Final destination where we keep cutting to the people who are going to die next, and we don't know how they're going to die. But just fate manipulates things mm-hmm. in such a way that all of a sudden, oh no, I was shot with a crossbow. What are the odds? Like that kind of thing. Oh right, there's the the guy shooting the William Tell movie. Yeah, somebody just puts a crossbow down on a table and it just fires at him. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, right, right in front of a ten year old boy. Problem is that when he did all these things, these guys screwed him over on a big oh. movie deal. Is that when he when he stabbed all these things, he was looking at a picture that also had. Uh, his wife or girlfriend and himself, and so he's trying to stop the well, fetish doll before flew, it gets around to him. Yeah, when he, which when is he, very, so it's basically well, it, it was, with it was a group gimmick. photo, and yeah, he kind yeah. of scanned it across it with his eyes, and um, yeah, there's there's a little bit of this sort of cultural appropriation, which is a big part. A little of, bit. Uh, uh, well, it's it's, it's a, a lot. It's a big part of this um, of a lot of those sort of like monkey's paw stories. Yeah. The cursed object or the thing that's sort of enacting its vengeance is usually from outside of the culture that is uh, living through that story. Yeah. Uh, or it's either or, or it's so impossibly ancient that the modern people are separated from their past. Yeah. Which is what we were bringing up at the beginning of the show about sort of driving the British countryside and re- reconnecting with the horrid history of your own nation's mm-hmm. uh, culture. Um, it goes to cultural fear. Of course. Uh, and and these stories spring from cultures that th- are notoriously uh, full of, not to put too fine a point on it, white supremacists, or come from a tradition of white supremacy who have mm. deliberately tied themselves off from the cultures that they've oppressed. Well, when you think about like how many British mm. museums are full of antiquities from cultures that... Britain colonized mm. and they basically just stole that stuff. And yeah, so yeah. the idea of all of these things that we thought we were so superior of that we looked down on mm. are now going to come kill us is perfectly valid yeah, as so a horror story. But I, I think the, it, the, the way it plays matters. Well, the way it plays is because when we have these sort of, you know, quote, African fetish dolls that have these magic powers around them, A, it is literally fetishizing that yep. culture. And also, the writers of these shows never bother to get any of the details about the origin, their the actual cultural thing. origin, yeah. correct. No, they don't it's not care. like it's not like from Namibia and has you know. Yeah, a, we did a our research. City there's actually and, you know, a story behind museum, it. Yeah. Yeah. and from you know, there's they're not actually connecting it to real history. It just they're otherizing it, and yeah. so that's still culturally inappropriate, even though. It is the oppressed culture getting revenge on the oppressors. But it's not in, the, it's, it's, not, it's yeah. not the oppressor's story to tell, especially if they're not gonna even bother to do the baseline work. Yeah. So it doesn't quite come across as genuine, but, but yeah. So so it's it's you know, classical oppressor's guilt. Uh, I am very eager to talk about this next one because this one mm. is my favorite and this one scared the shit out of me. It's called The Silent Scream. Oh, this is the one with Brian Cox and Peter Cushing, right? Okay, yeah. first off, it's got Brian Cox and Peter Cushing, and this is the youngest I've ever seen Brian Cox in anything. This is like pre-Manhunter. Yeah, these 
damn sexy in this. <laughs> in, in, a, in an ex-con yeah. trucker sort of no, way. No, no, no. Like not, not like in like a in like a Timothy Chalamet kind of mm. way, in like a young Robert Mitchum kind of way. Very manly. And at the beginning of the story, he has just gotten out of prison. Mm. And, and he can't find a job. And he can't find a job. He's got a girlfriend uh, who lives in a house in the country, far away from everything. That's quite nice, but he needs a job. And so he ends up getting a job with a kindly old man who visited him in jail, uh, played by Peter Cushing. Uh-huh. Peter Cushing's uh, character says, "Yes, yeah, so I was uh, in the Nazi concentration camps. I'm very, I'm very sympathetic to people." who are imprisoned for any reason mm. and I just want to make sure that people had visitors and yeah. maybe options when they got out. And so it turns out Peter Kuching runs a pet store mm-hmm. and he's willing to hire Brian Cox. But he's, what he's hiring him to do is to take care of the special menagerie in the back. <laughs> the special menagerie has shit like tigers, like stuff he's not supposed to have mm. in electrified cells. And this, yeah, this is actually um, something that's been put into practice. Like the, the shot collars. Yep. The fenceless yards. Uh, that That's something you just get now. Yeah. In fact, I think... No, chipping is different. Um, yeah, chipping is just but, being able to find someone. Yeah, this like is just, uh, uh, animals are getting tracking chips now, so yeah. you can find where they are. But, if um, they run away. Yeah. Uh, yeah, like actual location chips are implanted in animals now. It's not creepy at all. Yeah. And uh, But, yeah, shot collars are actually not new. Yeah. The, but... Uh, they were invented after the inception of this episode, as far as I know. But yeah, they were using sort of shock cages to keep wild animals inside their pens without so, having to build a pen. So Peter Cushing's idea mm. is he wants to train animals to be imprisoned without needing walls. Mm. And P- Brian Cox finds out he has a safe in the back. And he starts getting kind of impatient with his whole work thing. So he goes to steal some money. And that's when he finds out the safe was all a, a ruse. Was designed and, for him. Yes. And if he went for the safe, that means he's now stuck in the cage. And he's got to figure out a way to get out or live in prison. And of course, uh, Brian Cox, who is so great at playing like on the edge and maniacs, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, quickly loses it and begins to realize, oh, wait, maybe the doors are electrified and I don't know what. And you, you instantly see what's going on. He's the one being trained to stay in prison. Exactly. Uh, and, and we and we reveal at this mm-hmm. point, Peter Cushing, you know, he's like, and he's like, how could you do this? You're in the camps. He was like, yes, I was running them. <laughs> like that's so creepy it's such a great reveal but here's the thing yeah. that would be fine in of itself that's like it's like a short or short that's it that's the end of it it goes on and it keeps getting better because what happens is brian cox's girlfriend starts looking for him mm. and then just when it seems like she's going to help him escape peter, peter cushing pushes her in with him mm. and then and now they're stuck together and yeah. now they're they start to wonder whether or not this is some sort of weird perverted mating experiment yeah. to get these two people to have a child in captivity and then they also have a puppy Is yeah they like, are, they're, they're given a puppy of- then oof, that does not go well what happens by the end of this thing is so damn great so two things happen mm. they escape Okay, there's like a they're little... Afraid, they're afraid to go out the door. It just like the door opens on, on its own but it turns out if you go in at exactly the right moment you won't be electrified. Oh. So they escape. Mm. They escape and while in the midst of their escape, they managed to get basically trick Peter Cushing into one of his own pens. So mm. Peter Cushing is there, and no one knows he's in there, so he's going to die in captivity. <laughs> Starve to death or get electrocuted. Yeah. So they go home thinking, we've done it. We've done everything. We've, we've succeeded. And they get into their house, and then the house's doors lock on their own. And that's when they find out that while they were in prison, Peter Cushing turned their house into a new cage. <laughs> and there's no way out. And they're, they're in the middle sort of-, of nowhere. And we already established that they don't have a phone. And it's just mm. them screaming for anyone who will listen, but they're too far away. And they're just trapped mm. in this killer cage. 
It's scary as shit. <laughs> it's it's scary. I think it's buoyed by the two leads mostly. Yeah, they're really this, good. Yeah, uh, this idea. Oh yes, I have a panther. You know, it's a little silly, but uh, yeah, Peter Cushing is such a great actor, yeah. uh, and he's so good at playing really broad characters. I mean, he's classically trained. He's like John Gilgood. He could play a monster. He could play very subdued. And here he's he just gets to sort of swing for the walls. He clearly owed a favor to Hammer because he's in so many of the Hammer movies. And, but you know, he, and he, Hammer was failing at this point. It's like, come, can you but come he back? also liked doing this. Yeah, that's like, true. He, 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 he liked, loved like, these parts. Like Christopher Lee, he liked playing monsters. I think uh, Christopher Lee once agreed to do the Howling Two. Yeah, because quote, I'd never been in a werewolf film before. Yeah, that's I, th- it. I think he had, but yeah, you know. but it's, he he didn't remember. He's been in like nine hundred movies, yeah, so, so like he didn't remember, and so he was like, screw it, I'll do this one. And like, oh, it's would a you like stupid ass ho- movie? Would it be in the Howling Two? Oh. Sure. Do you want to read the script? No, I just want to do a werewolf movie. It's, it's quite bad. Yeah, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> All right, the next S- one. Sybil S- Danning takes her top off 13 uh, times. Okay, I'm good. The next one's actually a werewolf story, so that's a perfect segue. The next oh, one yeah. is Children of the Full Moon. It's a, which oh, This one's dumb. This uh, one's dumb, <laughs> and it's also not nearly complex enough to require 50 minutes. You could yeah, have done so, this one in 20. Uh, we start with the Rocky Horror Old Dark House setup. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. boring, people lose, boring people lose control dri- of their car driving on the, in the countryside. Road. They lose the control of their car. They crash. They wander out into the woods and they find a palatial estate where creepy things are, a sun, are afoot. And uh-huh. uh, yeah, it turns out there's a really nice matron there who's really welcoming. Why don't you stay for the night? We can't fix your car. Why don't you come up to the lab and see what's on the slab? Yes, and we have eight children, and uh, we're going to lock you in at night because you'll scare the children. Yeah, if you hear that's the, it. If you hear the children skittering about in the dark, don't worry. They like to skitter about in the dark. They and sure like howling and for some and reason. De- those eight children are definitely not werewolves. And our older children are definitely not teen wolves, too. <laughs> So what happens is they they actually leave without relatively it seems without incident, but it turns out she's been bitten by a werewolf or impregnated by the werewolf god. But she was bitten by a werewolf, so she's a werewolf now. And, and it takes him forever go, to figure this out, and then yeah. she gets preggers. Well, and it, it turns out like he wakes up in the hospital because they injured themselves while fleeing. So uh, it's played off as if it was all a dream. Yeah. So, no, no, we dreamed that there were werewolf children, and I'm definitely not a werewolf, and you just were dreaming all of that in the hospital while you were recovering from your injuries. Let's go back to the apartment and have wolf sex. Good time. Oh, yeah, there's nothing suspicious about that, and yeah, at the end, it turns out she just wanted a, a wolf child with this guy, and she ends up killing him. That's it. Moving it's, back into the wolf mansion. frustratingly simple, actually. Yeah. It's just like, there's nothing to it, really. The and, next and, one... And the, look, it's hard to make a good werewolf. Yeah, there, this there, one. There are some good ones in film history, but they are definitely the exceptions. The, yeah. Wolf, the Wolfman from 1941. Perfectly fine. Big long dead zone until the late 80s when we came out with American Werewolf uh, in London. Early 80s. Er, oh, excuse me. Same was, year we had American Werewolf in London and The Howling, two very respectable yeah. werewolves. Arguably well, yeah. the two best werewolves we've ever had. Um, have we had good werewolves since then? Dog Soldiers. Those were okay. Dog Soldiers was good. Mm. Ginger Snaps is a great werewolf movie without actually that great looking a werewolf. Yeah, the, the wolves themselves aren't they're good. Just, they're, they're just kind of okay. That, that movie Cursed has not, not a great, great. screenplay. I um, like the way they're CGI, and that's obviously not the ideal because we're talking about makeup effects, but mm. I actually like the way the werewolves look in Van Helsing. They just look like comic book werewolves. They look yeah, like muscular yeah. and cool. They look, they're, yeah, superheroes yeah. with this big head. But yeah. yeah, there's a lot of really great werewolf movies that don't have great werewolves. There's a great one called Late Phases, which is about a uh, blind Vietnam vet who moves 
goes to a retirement community on the outskirts of the woods and every full moon someone dies. I love this movie. <laughs> oh, it's great. Right. It's really, really great. And like, and so he he eventually figures out, mm. okay, there's a werewolf that's picking off the people at my old folks' home. I need to defend myself. And he's like, he's getting silver bullets. And the guy's just like, you're blind. He's like, I know. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it leads to a great showdown. And when you finally see the werewolf, it's not great. But mm. the rest of the movie is so damn good, you don't mm. care. Yeah, if you haven't seen Late Phases, one of the great werewolf movies, people do not talk about it. Okay. Really, really solid. But uh, that that all goes to say that this is uh, British TV budget. So, but when we see the werewolves, it's, it's like terrible. It's like kids with yak fur glued to their it's faces. So bad. It's just not. It's really terrible. They better not not to show it. No, I'm, I'm sure the makeup and technicians worked very hard. Oh, I'm but sure, it's but hard to make a good. It's werewolf. Hard to make a good werewolf, and uh, they did not succeed. Let's yeah. be fair. The next one's called Carpathian Eagle, which, in comparison to Children of the Full Moon, I think is unnecessarily complicated. Uh, but basically what's happening is there's a serial oh, this, killer. Yeah, this one's... Um, this one's weird, right? I, I had trouble following yeah, this one because I wasn't I sure if the killer and the heroine were the same person or not. I thought... Here's here's the, here's the what they did. Here's the basic gist of the story. Hmm. Someone has been killing people by... They, they okay. seduce them and then they rip out their hearts. Yeah. Gross. Ser- uh, serial the, killer yeah. with a dagger. A detective finds out that there's this parallel between what's happening now and this old ghost story or about a, a, a woman in Carpathia who... Who did the same Who thing, did yeah. similar things. She seduced men, brought them to her castle, mm-hmm. and turns out she killed hundreds of men and ripped out their hearts. Um, and so he enlists... And it's, and, not, and it's not Carmilla. No, it's not. It's But uh, he, uh, he enlists a woman who's an expert in like these kinds of urban legends folklore whatever to help him like see if there are any direct connections about halfway through the film or the the episode we start seeing the killer and the killer looks exactly like the woman mm. who's does the folklore stuff she's got but they don't actually say anything and i'm like di- like different hair and but it's clearly the same yeah. actress like we're not we're not stupid. So I, I like we can yeah, tell it's her. I wasn't sure if it was like we were supposed to be hoodwinked or there was like yeah. something more subtle going but on here. The, but it turns out it's just the same person. The, the twist know. is it's the same person. I'm like, you showed us who it was. Well, the twist is that it turns out like she was getting possessed by the ghost of the the old one. No, the, no, the she went, no, that's not it at all. Yeah, because she, no, she be, suspected she was getting possessed. That's but. what they suspected. But actually, yeah. what was happening is we find out that at, when all of this was done and she killed the cop and everything mm-hmm. and she got away with it. Um, she moves on to her next book in which she's going to investigate a serial killer who was a nurse who seduced her patients and then strangled them. Mm. And then at the end, we see her like take on the persona of that serial killer. So she's like someone who like oh, she's, has this kind oh, I, I of multiple personality. Yeah. I, th- I, thought she was, I thought she was actually being possessed. No, I think she's, she's, I think she's, she's just, just latching on to serial killer personas playing. and becoming a copycat. She's becoming a copycat in order to Like, she to, believes she's the serial killer oh, yeah. she's doing research. I, I, I watched this one late at night. It's, I missed no, that. I, no, no, I watched this. I, had yeah. to, I watched the second half of this one again just oh. because I, it's so oddly laid out. And this is also with Pierce Brosnan in it, by the way. Pierce Brosnan plays... He's just one of the victims, He's just one too, of the victims, yeah. but he's very young and very handsome. Mm-hmm. Um, so this one's weird. It doesn't really work. Mm-hmm. Um, the next one is called Guardian of the Abyss. And this was the Satan episode with the mirror... Uh, yeah, the scrying glass, mm-hmm. which is uh, sort of a enchanted mirror through which yeah, you so can see the future, look into other dimensions, we, speak to uh, demons. And we start in a very classically British television uh, satanic ritual, and I love those. <laughs> like, clearly on a really bad set, a lot of like red robes and candles around, but it's still really brightly lit, and <laughs> the goat makeup looks the same on everybody when they're playing Satan. It's... 
it's it, it hits a soft spot in me that sort of br- British television level satanic rites and uh, yeah they're using this scrying glass as you say to reveal to their potential victims like the face of evil and that kind of drives them mad yeah um and uh, during one of the rituals, a young woman escapes, and she escapes out into the countryside and meets our uh, uh, male hero. Uh, the woman who escapes, I was racking my brain where I saw her before. Yeah. And it turns out she's in a Star Trek episode. Of she was in a Star Trek episode. <laughs> she was years... alive in the 80s. She, yeah, she's... <laughs> Yeah, like seven years later, she showed up in, in the first season episode, Up the Long Ladder, where she played like an Irish farmer who ended up like drifting apart from her culture at one point. Uh, and half of the culture became Irish farmers and the other part of the culture became like cold soulless clone technicians. You know, like you do. And they stopped, stopped uh, they lost their ability to breed. So they ended up having to like remix the clones. Oh, I the remember Irish. this episode. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I don't remember her in it, but I remember that episode. Yeah. Yeah, she, um, she was the one who was like flirting with Riker and was like all, all like sexy and sassy. Yeah. So same, anyway, same this one's kind of built like a yeah. film noir where it's, it's almost like Kiss Me Deadly. Mm-hmm. But instead of investigating people who are after a big MacGuffin, he's investigating Satanists. And this one feels like it needed an extra half hour. This one feels. <laughs> this one actually feels like because the structure is there for a real movie, uh-huh. but everything is either really rushed or kind of underdeveloped, and they keep talking about things that like we're supposed to know, but they didn't actually do the work. Like one of the Satanists comes to our hero's house, and he's just like, mm, "Bring me dry bread and salt," mm. and then she goes comes in like, "No, never give a witch dry bread and salt in your house." And I'm like, "Should we have known that?" <laughs> There's all this stuff that you're not explaining to us, and then well, it ends in not, sort of like, aha, that person's going to be a demon. And well, we're, we're not really sure if the young woman is still in league with the Satanists or is actually trying to escape the Satanists. And the main guy beca- comes into possession of the mirror kind of by incident. He just yeah. like, finds it at a yard sale. But then he also runs into her by accident. Yeah. So you, you, it's difficult. A lot of stories can begin with one coincidence because yeah. that's how a lot of stories begin. It's just randomly you run into something crazy, and that's it's, the more coincidences you have, you're not allowed coincidences at the end because it feels false and phony. Mm. You're allowed one at the beginning. You put two at the beginning, two it right starts feeling really yeah. false. Like, first off, he gets he the scrying glass and, and he runs into this lady, this young woman at this, like, and they're unrelated events, the they're unrelated uh, events. Uh huh. What the fuck? <laughs> so this one, I feel like if this one had another half hour, 45 minutes, you yeah. could have like made all that stuff feel like it was actually yeah. planned as this, opposed to yeah. kind of random. And and ultimately, it feels like a pretty typical Satan thriller from yeah. the 70s, of which there were many, many, many. Yeah, in, to in the, the devil, way, a daughter. In, in, the, in yeah. the wake of The Exorcist, there were a lot of satanic rituals on film. And yeah. um, like I said, I, I liked watching them just because I saw so many growing up. So I have a fondness for the aesthetic. Yeah, but they're all kind of interchangeable at the end of the day, and this is just another way. It's not a change. The next one is actually I, I I was kind of bored with it. Oh wait, no, I'm sorry, I'm thinking another one. Hold on. Mm. Oh no, this one. Okay, this one's Visitor from the Grave. This is uh-huh. not the one I was thinking of. Visitor from the Grave is about a woman. A guy breaks into her house, and he's about to attack her, and he's about to attack her sexually, and mm. so she shoots him. With a yeah, a rifle that was by the bed. And then... Then Simon McCorkendale comes in and says, What did you do? Yes. And uh, it turns out um, it, it, it's illegal to own a gun, and they didn't want to reveal that they murdered a guy on their property, even though it's clearly breaking and entering in self-defense. That should be, like, worst-case scenario, they're going to ding you on the gun, you're going to get a fine or something like that. Yeah. But, like, this is one of those situations where the cops be like... This could have gone so much worse. Yeah, so, you know? uh oh, you killed this guy, you shot him in the face, and so yeah. now uh, I, Simon McCorkendale, who is Manimal, yes. or I guess will be Manimal in a couple of years, because uh, this is pre-Manimal. It's pre-Manimal. 
There's only two eras. Before, after. There's before and Manimal. Actually, I should write that back. There's before Manimal, Manimal, and then after Manimal. Manimal was like a six-week period in 1983. But it, was, <laughs> but it was a great era. It was a great couple of weeks. Um, but but yeah, like, so, so Ma- Manimal drags him out into the woods and buries him, and she starts getting Lady Macbeth syndrome. She starts seeing the dead guy everywhere. She wants to she enlist a psychic yeah, to help d- dispose so, yeah. of the ghosts and everything. And then she goes completely mad. And he, he, Well, he, he starts like, yeah, he recommends the psychic, and then... The psychic recommends like a swami from India to perform an exorcism. But the swami will only show up if we give him one hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and she's like, "Okay, pounds, Uh, whatever pounds." Mm -hmm. But like, Mm -hmm. and like, but she's like, "Oh, okay, I'll just get that out of my private bank account that my husband Simon McCorkendale can't access. Nothing suspicious about this." And then there's a big. It's introduced kind of late. Not. uh, I am wealthy and and uh, you know Simon McCorkendale in a suspicious way says, "Oh no, I'm not jealous of your wealth." Nothing nothing like that. It's just it's it's established really late in the episode that she's incredibly wealthy. But once it is, it becomes pretty clear where we're going. Yeah, once it's okay, fine. I'll give you one hundred and fifty thousand pounds for this thing you want to set up in England. And the Swami shows up, and it's this really racist stereotype of a Swami. Turns out there's a reason it's a racist stereotype. Turns out it's a white guy in Indian face, and that's actually the plot point of the movie because or the show because they do a seance. The guy shows up. Turns out that guy was never dead to begin Mm. with. I guess there were blanks in the gun, and he's been just like. Scaring her this whole time. It's, Husband's it's, been it's, in on it. Yeah. She kills herself, and 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 they, they, soon, they all as celebrate. Soon as, as soon as she she's ju- just fell down dead in the other room, and on the the psychic, the Swami, and Simon McCorkendale said, "Oh, thank goodness." Yeah, the, 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 the Let's swami count like, our money. The swami like pulls off all his makeups. Ah, oh, I was a white guy all along, and the the, the psychic says, "Ah, oh, I'm not Romanian. I'm just a British lady all along." And yes, we're all just terrible yeah. human we're beings. Just terrible British people. <laughs> yes, and then and, and then they get out like this big sack of cash and just dump it on a table, and they toast over it. Very tales from the crypt. Yeah, and then wouldn't you know it, the ghost of the dead lady who is not whose body still is warm upstairs. Uh-huh. Just appears and says, "Oh, you assholes! You got me! <laughs> you got me!" So Bob two can play at that game. So she burns the money. She turns. Yes, magically sets, burns the money. Sets the money on fire with her ghost powers and they're like, "Oh fuck!" I got the impression that they'd be burned alive in the house, but I don't know if that's what happened. That's what happened. Okay. But the, why would they survive? That's I don't not the way know. these stories work. The next one, I like the next one a lot. It starts off kind of boring, but then it finally yeah. like got me. Well, have, uh, have you seen um, what was the t- oh the Tom Berenger thriller? Uh, Shattered Glass. No, I never saw Shattered Glass. Is it similar? Similar to Shattered Glass. Okay, well, this one's called Two Faces of Evil. Hmm. Uh, and it is about a family on... They're, they're going to a cottage in the middle of nowhere, and they're... Shattered Glass, or... I don't know what you're talking about. Um, I don't know it, so... It's a family, man, woman, child... Uh, they are going to a cottage for a holiday. Uh, it's rainy. Their car veers off the road a bit, and they end up picking up a hitchhiker. Apologies. Shattered Glass was the biopic with Chris- Hayden Christensen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Shattered is the 1991 thriller <sighs> I'm thinking of. Okay, fair enough. Uh, yeah, with Tom Berenger and uh, Greta Saki. Good note. Good to know. It's a Wolfgang Peterson film. Okay, good. Yeah, I'll have to check that out sometime. Um, so, uh, so they pick up a hitchhiker in the middle of the road, and the hitchhiker... Uh, has one distinguishing feature like on his hand, mm. and he attacks the husband. Oh, There's a car accident. He's got claws on his right hand. This is pre Freddy Krueger. This is true. He's got mm. one claw, but uh, uh, he's got like a big thumbnail. No, that's no, like a big like middle finger, oh, okay, yeah, pointy yeah. nail. Like he can use. <gasps> it's Pendulette. Here you go. Pendulette has the one long nail. Uh, he uh, he attacks the husband in the middle of the car. The car creams off the road. Everyone either is incapacitated or dead, mm. and she wakes up in the hospital. And 
She's fine. Fortunately, her child is fine. Her husband had some serious throat injuries because that's where he was attacked. Mm-hmm. And he can't talk. So she goes to see him. It's like, oh, thank God. And then they ask her, hey, can you identify the body of the murderer? And she's just like, no, I just can't. Mm-hmm. I just can't. And so... Well, and, and she and when she goes back to visit the husband, she says, you're right, husband, right? Because you're my husband. Wink. You figure out pretty pretty quick what's going on. Here. Yeah, yeah. So the husband, like, comes home and they're just told, like, yeah, just, you know, he, he won't be able to talk and he might be kind of aggravated about, you know, the whole not being able to talk thing. So just be chill and relax and just accept everything he does without thinking. And she's like, oh, okay. And that's when she realizes he has the claw. Mm-hmm. And But she's now, like, with the son and she doesn't want to panic this guy who might kill her. So she goes back to the to the hospital and says, "The person think, who died is my husband. The killer, just, up, yeah. the killer just looks a lot like him." Uh, and then it, she sees the body, and it turns out it was her husband. It, it was the killer all along. It's it's fine. Her husband is indeed her husband. Everything is okay. No, it's not. And on top of everything, it's not just a coincidence they look alike. This whole community is starting to be overrun by evil doppelgangers. <laughs> so while she and her child are running from him, she like runs into a hayloft and she finds the corpse of her. She finds her child there. It's like, oh, thank God. And then the corpse of her actual child is right next to it. Mm. And she's like, yeah. See, this is what I wish us had been like. I, mean, I can see that. <laughs> kind of in, infiltrating slowly this weird sort of insidious thing. Well, whatever. I, uh, think, I think they're both kind of... It's, it's, it's a different, different animal. Yeah, um, and then the last episode is... Another Satan episode. Uh, it's sort of a Satan episode. It's more, I, of, a, it's more of a, a mental I, uh, illness episode. I, I, I admit... I watched this one very late at night, and I kind of fell asleep. So you I'll tell you about this one. So this okay. one's called Mark of Satan, and this is about a guy who uh, is paranoid mm-hmm. uh, and delusional. And he is working in like the coroner's office at a hospital. And while he's there, he actually gets like, he cuts his finger on someone who died of like meningitis. So, you know, that's not good. Mm. Uh, and then he starts having these hallucinations and he starts thinking that he's seeing these number okay. patterns oh. everywhere. Oh, yeah, and yeah, yeah. the police are actually just talking to him in weather veins. And uh, maybe his mother is out to kill him. So he kills his mother. And it turns out their border is actually like kind of okay with him doing that. <laughs> starts manipulating him. And, um, and then it turns out people stop him like, oh, it's okay, it's okay. We, you 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 had a psychotic break. You had an infection. You, everything's okay now. And he's like, oh, thank God. Everything's fine. Mm-hmm. And then he's like, where is my mom? And it turns out they never actually found her. And then he realizes that she's dead. And then the border was, like, manipulating him all along. And so he decides to eat her baby. <laughs> yeah, it's really gross. Oh, and, um, okay. and, then, uh, and then, like, in the end, he, like, tries to lobotomize himself because that's what he does. And it's... It's Crazy. a mess, honestly. Like it's All a right. thing where like they're trying to approximate mm-hmm. the uh, sort of the the way someone who is detached from reality would mm-hmm. think. And there are bits of the episode where mm-hmm. you start to sort of key into the wavelength of someone who is indeed losing their mind and losing their mind to okay. paranoid conspiracy theories. And it's equal parts kind of terrifying, but also kind of sad. Mm-hmm. Uh, in some respects, it does that better than Joker does, but in the end, it ultimately feels just really contrived and kind of forced, mm-hmm. um, kind of like Joker. Uh, so it's not a great episode. The end of the series on. It's definitely okay. one. Of, it's definitely. I think it's one of the duds. There mm-hmm. are moments where it's great, but mo- it's one of the yeah. duds. Um, overall, though, 
I think this show is great. Yeah. I think it's really terrific. I was having a great time watching it. Yeah. I was looking forward to watching it. Yeah. Even though it's it was a, a long slog, you know, 13, 51 minute episodes is yeah. difficult when... It's it's a long binge. When, when we're used to, you know, half hours that are actually only 21 minutes, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I, I appreciated it's a kind of masterpiece theater storytelling. It's it's one of those things where without a gimmick, it's given so much more freedom, mm. and yet it still managed to strike almost a similar tone throughout. You know, I think the sort of suspense and and uh, sinister goings on, although completely different, all did have kind of a similar vibe to them because you had one sort of showrunner overseeing it all. Yeah, but they weren't beholden to whatever the cryptkeeper was saying. Yeah, so this is one of those shows that yes, it was definitely canceled too soon. And it feels like it could have gone on indefinitely. It's yeah. one of those one of those horror shows that could like still be on thirty five years keep, later. Keep the cast. Keep. Mm. Uh, uh, I don't know if you need to keep the same writer or something mm. like that, but keep the same whatever you told people to do with these episodes. Just keep telling them to do it. Yeah, because there is nothing fundamentally wrong with it. Yeah, a few episodes are duds, but seriously, compared to a lot of horror anthologies, even ones that we liked. Like we called perversions of science like the best year the best show that we did in One the first them, yeah. year. No, in the first year that we did it, we called it was the best it was the show that was definitely canceled too soon. Mm. This is better than perversions of science overall. Like perversions yeah, of science's yeah. peaks might be better than Hammer Horror's mm. peaks, but mm. the valleys are way worse than Hammer Horror. Yeah. This is a very, very good series. This series is currently very readily available for something that is considered somewhat obscure. Mm. Uh, it's on Amazon Prime right now. Yeah, you, if you have Amazon Prime... Yeah, no extra cost. It's right there. It's, it's there. You can just watch it. And it's been yeah. remastered. It was put on DVD in the early 2000s. It's on Blu-ray now. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah it's, 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 it's pretty fucking solid. So, um, But um, yeah, this one could have been uh, the same as... The show I was thinking of was Mystery. Did you, did you ever see Mystery! Exclamation point? I don't think so. Surely you've seen the opening credits, which are an animation by Edward Gorey. Uh, it's really oh terrific. yes, yes I have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah I've um, seen that. that one debuted the same year as Hammer oh. House of Horror, but that one lasted until 2006. Wow! So there's no reason why this one could not have run concurrent with Mystery. Agreed. Yeah. So yeah, I agree. This one was definitely canceled too soon, and mm-hmm. I want to thank everyone who subscribes on Patreon who voted uh, for making this one the winner because it's great for me, and I hope it's great for you because if you haven't seen it. Seriously, make the time. Mm. A couple of them are duds, but they're really quite good overall. Um, so that is canceled too soon for this week. Thank you everybody for listening. We'll be back next week with another uh, Patreon uh, poll winner. Mm. Uh, all of next week's uh, options were of series that were canceled on Netflix, and the one that you voted for was Julie's Green Room, <laughs> which is so a very, a very big about face. Big about face from, yeah, 1980 anthology horror film. But yeah, this was a, a sort of Muppet-style show with Julie Andrews playing herself. Yep. Uh, heading up a Muppet-style theater show and um, talking to Muppets. Cool. That's a great idea. Yeah, I'm down. Now, I know Netflix' current model doesn't tend to allow for long-running series, but why don't we get more of this one? We're about to find out. I honestly don't know. Like, well, I watched one like, episode of this when it was on. I thought it was very, very charming. But right. because it's pretty, you know, it's pretty chill, mm. uh, the, the question is, 
did I feel like I needed to see the rest? Yeah, Maybe this, not. This is now going to be the second puppet-based Netflix series we've covered. Oh, because there was. Well, the, it's also it also has a reality TV angle too, because it's like oh, instructional. Just, yeah, because we were. I'm talking about the Curious Creations of Christine McConnell. Weird. Uh, which was also a puppet show that had a reality TV aspect to it. Yeah, Netflix. Stick just stick with puppets. Well, and they didn't. Was it Netflix who did the Dark Crystal series? Yeah. So, so yeah, they're, they're just they're keep on they're gonna stick with those puppets. Oh, well, very well. From what um, I understand, the Dark Crystal was pretty well received, but that's only, oh, very well received. Only, I still haven't watched it, but I hear it's great. Um, I watched five minutes and I gave up. Oh, I'm <laughs> I was sorry. like, this is not my kind of story. That's too bad. Um, so yeah, Julie's Green Room. If you want to yeah. uh, follow us along, it's still on Netflix, uh, and uh, then we have another uh, poll winner after that, and then we have some really cool things cooking for March. And we're very excited to share them with you. So uh, if you want to email us, don't forget, letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We'll read your emails on our web series or uh, our podcast series, We've Got Mail. Uh, and it could be about Cancel Too Soon. It could be about movies. It could be about anything at all, really. Just knock yourself out. That's blank slate. Tell mm-hmm. us what you want. Um, and, of course, Patreon, patreon.com slash criticallyacclaimednetwork. You can vote for future episodes of Cancel Too Soon. Uh, you get a ton of original content, like our Star Trek podcast, our Oscars podcast. Uh, stick around because uh, pretty soon we're going to be able to debut our Star Wars podcast, Episode Zero, here on the main channel. You don't need Patreon for that. And, of course, you can follow us on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I'm Will- at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. And that is a wrap. We'll see you next season. Music